0: You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, believe it or not, uh, several years ago, I used to be a pretty good preacher Uh, from 20 to 25 I probably spoke to around uh, 100 different venues, uh, upwards to about 20,000 or so different people throughout those years. That's not a lot, but it is somewhat of a lot. The Southern Baptists, as you'll see on the screen, ended up giving me a preaching award. Uh, I was also uh, given a teaching assistant position at a seminary teaching a, uh, helping to teach a course called Preaching. They actually do have that, that course. And for some reason uh, or not, uh, my picture is still up on my theological college's uh, page on preaching, their PhD program, although I never uh, even tried to get a PhD in (laughs) preaching. Uh, Now, those years happened shortly after I had become a Christian. Faith in Jesus had become very real to me as a 19-year-old in college. He changed my life. And as a result, I was really drawn To speaking about Christ and the Bible. When I think about speaking back then, it was a lot more enthusiastic. As they say, I was ignorance on fire. I drew a lot on my personality, which if you know me, uh, I have a big personality, and so drawing on that was very helpful. I could speak to audiences of high schoolers or middle schoolers, and I could get really animated and really draw people in with, with ease. Now, my style is a little bit different today. I think transparency is more important than excitability, but I'm still shocked and amazed at the grace of God in my life. I still feel drawn to speak about Jesus and speak about grace and speak about the Bible, although just in a more mature way. My point in saying all that is that we're going to see in our passage this morning A much more powerful example of that same conversion or grace to preaching dynamic. We're going to see the immediate aftermath of what happened when the most unlikely person became a follower of Jesus Christ. We'll begin to see how God takes this guy Paul, or Saul, how he takes his background, his wit, his schooling, his citizenship, his speech, his zeal, And God's going to take those things and leverage those things and repurpose those things to serve his mission in the world. And for you and I, just like Mary Magdalene or the lawyer or the apostle Matthew or Lydia and everybody else, God wants to take our backgrounds, our wit, our intelligence, our shame, our guilt, our hustle, our perseverance, our focus, our courage, or whatever it is, He wants to take those things and leverage those things and repurpose those things to serve his mission in the world. For most of us, I realize that doesn't mean becoming a preacher, but for all of us, it means seeing how we can leverage our lives, how we can repurpose our lives to be caught up in all that God is doing in the world. Which really gets us to the main idea of this morning, the main idea of this passage, and that's this. It'll be up on the screen. God's grace repurposes our lives to be caught up in all that he is doing in the world. Said another way, God is at work in the world. And his work in the world is primarily about redemption, about fixing broken things, about restoring and giving life to hurt things, about seeing this broken world being put back together through Jesus Christ. And he calls us to participate in that important work. When we meet Jesus, that call isn't just to be more involved with things that are going on in church. It's a call to find out where God is at work in your job, in your community, and your relationships, and by the power of his Spirit to jump in. Said from the mouth of Paul or Saul, who we're reading about today, 1 Corinthians 15, I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. In other words, Jesus changed his life, and that grace led him to be caught up in all that God was doing in the world. Now, my outline is going to be up on the screen, and it's pretty straightforward. Number one, We'll look at grace, particularly Paul's conversion. We'll do a little bit of a recap from last week. We'll look at how it happened in Paul's story, and I'll be using the names Paul and Saul interchangeably. Uh, One's his Hebrew name and one is his Greek name. And then we'll look at how does it happen in our story. We'll also look at how Paul was repurposed, how he's recommissioned how he participated in God's work, and we'll look particularly, this passage talks about his work early on in Damascus in Acts chapter 19 through 31, as well as in Jerusalem. So let's look at the first grace and how it happened in Paul's story. Now, Acts chapter 9 is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. We looked at it in detail last weak, but in this very first verse we're introduced to Saul or Paul. He's this very zealous, intelligent, and positioned rabbi. Uh, Think professor, lawyer, and community leader kind of all wrapped up into one, and this movement Christianity is really starting to take off. Uh, Thousands of people within Judaism had converted to this new thing Christianity And at first, it looks like a Jewish revival or a Jewish renewal movement within Judaism. But then many people, like Saul, start hearing about the content or the message of Christianity. It's a movement that's built on the contention that just a few years ago, the Messiah came. His name was Jesus, and he taught like no one else. He did things like no one else. And he said things like no one else. But the problem was that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the Christ. And so he was killed for blasphemy, as well as some other reasons. But then Christians start saying he rose from the dead, that it was all part of God's plan, and that the kingdom of God, this this power of God, God's renewing work in the world had started to come, and one day it would come in full. Well, Saul and several others, they're not having it. Uh, He's seeing the divisiveness and, in his mind, the deceitfulness of this Christian movement. For Saul, God's Messiah would not be weak. God's Messiah would not die. And so he's been on a mission, Saul, throughout the book of Acts to squash this growing movement called Christianity. And he's on his way to Damascus, which is modern-day Syria, to continue this crackdown, and all of a sudden, God steps in. Saul, or Paul, he hears a voice, and he falls down, and it's the voice of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Lord. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So Saul or Paul, he goes blind, and for several days he doesn't eat or drink. He's in absolute distress, and then God taps another Christian, and he tells him miraculously exactly where Saul or Paul is in the city. This other Christian is very hesitant to go meet Saul or Paul since he's heard a lot about this guy, but the Lord doubles down and says, go. This guy goes. They talk probably for a little bit. He lays his hands on him. It's a sign of conversion or blessing. God's spirit comes. Paul's no longer blind. He's baptized on the spot. He's been converted. Now, a lot of people don't like that word conversion today. When some people hear that word, they hear a religious word, or they hear a word that's all about forcing or coercing someone to do something they don't want to do. People like to see themselves as independent and established and strong, free from any need to change. But the truth is is that anybody who's ever existed has been converted into particular worldviews. Uh, For instance, the big one is As Westerners, we've grown up and we have slowly been converted into a worldview where everything is about us, where we are at the center of everything. But there are other things you can get converted into, things like diets, things like weightlifting programs, philosophies, politics, TV shows, and so forth. It happens all the time. It happens every day. But to be converted into Christianity is to be converted into a worldview where Jesus is at the center, where the Son of God and all his blazing goodness is at the center of our lives, uh, to know him and to see that everything is really all about him. Now, the book of Acts shows us that when Christianity was spreading like wildfire, when it was spreading rapidly throughout the known world, it was through this concept, this reality of conversion. Said another way, Christianity isn't just some teachings about the ethics of Jesus and applying those ethics to our lives, trying to start following the teachings of Jesus. Conversion isn't just something we're born into. Christian conversion is a power that takes us up. It's a power that enters into our life. It's an encounter with God that changes us from the inside out. And the most obvious example of that conversion power is right here in front of us in Acts chapter 9. Paul is this zealous persecutor. He's narrow-minded. And like all zealous persecutors, whether they're super liberal or super conservative or religious or non-religious, on the inside, they're very unhappy. They're very angry. They're very unsettled. They're very discontent. But then he gets converted. He meets the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And years later, he says this about his heart. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. In other words, his conversion deeply changed him. It deeply impacted him. The grace of God changed his life from the inside out. Which really leads us to this, the second sub-point of this morning. How does this happen in our story? How does conversion, how does grace happen in our story? Now, for some of us, this has happened in our stories. Uh, we have what's called a testimony. We have a story. It may have been a process, or it may have been immediate, but we have a story. We have a testimony about how the grace of God in Jesus touched our lives. Uh, But for others of us, we're not sure yet. Wherever you are, the way this happens in any story is the same way it happened in the life of Paul. We're confronted by the real God. We're face-to-face with the real God. Now, there's a lot of roadblocks to this reality, and I just have two for you this morning. Number one, a lot of people say they can't believe in a God who doesn't accept everyone no matter what they believe. Uh, He's the God of love, many would say. He is the God of everything to do with love. Everything is about love. Uh, There's no standards upon anything or anyone. Everyone is good. He's the God of all love. There are no particular standards in that God. A good question this morning for someone, or perhaps you, if you land there, why do you believe in that God rather than something else? Why do you believe in that God rather than something else? And I think the answer, and I want to be gentle here, I want to be kind here, is probably because you want to believe that. And as gently and as graciously as I can say, that's a God you've created in your own heart. It's exactly the God that you would want. It fits the views you already have quite perfectly. And again, graciously. And gently, the bad news is that God can't ever change you. That God can't turn you from an angry or an unsettled or a discontent person into a joyful or content person. That God can't turn you into a a person that's filled with purpose and meaning. There's no power in that particular God because he doesn't exist. Another roadblock that I've found is that a lot of people reject the God of the Bible because he says and does things they don't agree with. This one's a little bit more technical, but this is the person who essentially reads the Bible and they see things they don't like, things they don't agree with. And so they have a different view of God. A possibly good question, though, for someone who may land there this morning, Where does your God tell you things you don't want to hear? Where does your God tell you things you don't want to accept? And I think the answer, again, is probably most often, if not ever. The truth is, is we can only be converted if we have a God who's not exactly as we would have him be. A God who says some scary stuff. A God who at times totally contradicts us. A God whose worldview clashes with our worldview. a God whose actions sometimes don't make sense. the real God. until we meet that God who at times is sometimes disturbing, is sometimes confusing, is sometimes beyond our thoughts, will never be changed. A good example of this is if you're in a relationship or a friendship with a person who never offends you, who never contradicts you, uh, who never challenges you, you don't have a real friendship with that person, for whatever reason, that person's hiding uh, who they are. They're concealing their true self. It's not a personal relationship. It's something else. And Paul had a relationship with a God who he'd made up for himself. He was trying to serve the God of the Bible, but he was filtering out all sorts of things because he didn't want to believe it. But eventually the real God broke through. And it wasn't just a spiritual experience. It wasn't just a feel-good moment. He was face-to-face with the unchanging, all-wise, resurrected Jesus Christ. And when Paul realized that, it converted him. It changed him. And the same is true for us. At the end of the day, you might have lots of objections to the Christian faith this morning, Christians throughout history that have committed injustices, why God allows so much evil in the world, Christian ethical issues that you find difficult to ascribe to in the 21st century, but it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that changes us It's being face-to-face with the Son of God that converts us. It's that truth that transforms a life. Paul would have had a lot of questions. As a Jew, how does the Trinity work? What is God doing with the temple and the sacrificial system? Why are large parts of the Old Testament being done away with? But Jesus shows up alive in front of him. And the only thing that Paul can say is, what would you have me do? How would you have me serve you? The point is, you may have all these questions. I don't know who you are this morning. I don't know where you're at this morning with faith. You may have all these objections. But the question of the hour is, do you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? If no, you have to have the intellectual integrity to come up with an answer of how did the church emerge so fast and so rapidly, you have to be able to answer that question. But if yes, you have to submit to him. You have to follow him. You have to worship him. You have to trust him. Which really leads us to our second point, and the passage we're mainly looking at this morning, Paul's repurposing what happened after his encounter with God. What happened after his encounter with the resurrected Christ? Now, notice right after his conversion, he immediately starts participating in God's work. For Paul, it's preaching the gospel. In these 16 verses, there's at least five references to preaching or proclaiming Jesus Christ. Verse 20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus, verse 22, by proving that Jesus was the Christ, verse 27. He had preached boldly, verse 28, preaching boldly in the Lord, verse 29, and he spoke and disputed. Now preaching is not a positive word in our culture today either. One of my friends who's very progressive was explaining his thoughts on a Marvel TV show recently to me and he said he didn't like the show because it was very preachy. Uh, His point was that he felt like the show's message was to scold him or to correct him, and the directors were taking the moral or the high ground. And he captures uh, what people mean often today when they hear that word preaching. It means scolding to many people. It means taking when one takes the moral high ground and uh, attempts to lay down guilt or uh, shame to try to get you to live in a certain way. It means ranting opinions. Now, if you've been breathing... Our society has little tolerance for this kind of thing. We see these as threats to our freedom, uh, to live and to think and to do what we would want to do. And so we avoid preachy people. Uh, We avoid preaching things. We even create words to mock lesser forms of threats to our freedom. I recently heard one King's Church member was with Wesley and I this week, and she got an email scheduling her to a service team and I guess I'm out of date on terms but she said she was voluntold that and I found that very funny uh, that she would be on one of the service teams. Another term I've heard is mansplaining which is a very negative term It's, it's when a human male is possibly secretly sexist and he feels the need to to talk to women in a a way like children or to explain the way that things are I've seen it, and it's it's not pretty. but all but all that is not what preaching is in the Bible. Uh, Jesus says preaching is to set the captives free. Uh, the word preaching in the Bible has to do with announcing or declaring or making a proclamation about the good news in Jesus Christ. It has to do with leading people with to be able to see with spiritual eyes the the beauty and the reality of Jesus Christ. It has to do with leading people to hear with spiritual ears the voice of God through the message. And it has to do with leading people to a true freedom, uh, a freedom that could be theirs in Jesus where they find forgiveness and life and joy through the death and resurrection of the Son of God. And this is exactly what Paul was now doing. He was preaching, he was proclaiming, he was announcing this great news of Jesus Christ. Now notice first, he's still in Damascus, Syria, where he's been converted. In verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. Now synagogues were the the religious, the cultural kind of meeting center of the Jewish community. Lots of people would have been there, and so Paul is there talking about Jesus And his message can really be summarized in verses 20 and 22. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So his message is summarized by stating that Jesus is the Son of God and that and proving that he is the Christ. Now this amazed people, certainly. Uh, they knew who he was, but he's wearing the opposite team's jersey. The This is the other team's MVP, and now he's throwing the ball fast and quite confidently and accurately with utter confidence for the other team. Uh, now, Jesus as the Son of God simply means this, that he has the same nature as God. To be the Son of God means you are of God. He was making a claim, Jesus, and Paul was preaching that he is God, that he is the image of God, the exact radiance of his being, the exact representation of his being in human form. Jesus as the Christ simply means that he is the anointed one. He is the fulfillment of all of the Hebrew scriptures. He is the yes and the amen to all of God's promises. He is the prophet and the priest and the king, the final and ultimate form of all those things in one. Now, not all of us are called to be preachers, but we are all called to use our voice when we can and when the Lord opens up doors for us. One great quote I've heard is that evangelism, which is the idea of sharing your faith, Evangelism is not being afraid to show who you are. Evangelism is not being afraid to show who you are. That is, if you're a Christian, God has done a work in your life. He's converted you. He's confronted you. He's saved you. He's given you a new song deep in your heart. And the idea is to not conceal that hope, to be true to yourself, to not be afraid to let Christ shine through you it'll be worth it in the end as my friend who's a a government bureaucrat always says the day after my 20 years in my career is over they're gonna throw me a pizza party on Friday in the lounge and the next Monday my desk is gonna be filled with a new bureaucrat the pizza party we will get when we say goodbye will not compare to in any way the chances we get to share the most deepest and precious thing about us to those we love. It's worth it. The text goes on and says that things start to get really tense. Verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews, that some of them, not all, plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by the night and led him His disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So his speaking and reasoning about Jesus as the Christ, uh, about the point of all of the Bible, starts to get people really heated and angry. And Paul and some of the other Christians, they they learn about this plot to kill him. And since Damascus was a fortified city with a gate and guards, he couldn't get out. And so he's on the no-fly list, we might say. And so the believers come up with a plan. They're going to put him in a basket, and they're going to lower him at night. And so they do that, and for the next three years, between verses 25 and 26, we learn from the book of Galatians and 2 Corinthians, and also later on in the book of Acts, Paul goes to Arabia for three years. This is modern-day Jordan. He probably was in and out of Damascus, and it's likely he went to places like modern-day Jerush and probably the newly constructed city of Petra, since it was a major major trading uh, city at the time. Eventually, after these three years, he arrives at Jerusalem. And the text says in verse 26, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So they're not having it. They're not ready to accept him right away. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So this guy Barnabas reaches out. Barnabas is a guy we'll learn in the book of Acts. He's filled with patience and grace and encouragement and life. He'll eventually be Paul's colleague and he vouches for him. We also learn from the book of Galatians that on this visit, Paul meets Peter. Peter was the the primary leader of the church at Jerusalem, and they had two weeks together. Paul would have wanted Peter to take him to the places where Jesus had taught, the places where Jesus had worked, places like the Garden of Gethsemane, the Upper Room, the Home of Lazarus, the Pools of Siloam, Bethesda, and especially Calvary. And Paul probably would have showed Peter where he stood just a few years ago when he cheered on the death of the first Christian martyr. Peter probably would have showed him the place where he denied Jesus Christ. It would have been two weeks filled with lots of joy, but also lots of regret and lots of grace passage goes on in verse 28, So he went in and out among them, Paul, at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking Jews, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So he continues to preach, he continues to proclaim this hope that he had found in his relationship to Jesus. Grace transformed his life, and he was being caught up in all that God was doing in the world. Now, in this case, it brings tension. People get upset, and then it gets serious. They want to shut him down, and just like at Damascus, some Christians there sneak him out, and they get him out of Jerusalem. And finally, the writer makes a note, verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, we love that word multiplied here at King's Church, but this note here reminds us that the church goes through seasons. The last few chapters of the book of Acts have been bumpy for the early church. The apostles were thrown into prison, Stephen got murdered, and thousands of Christians had to scatter. But now God's taken the problem, Paul, and he's turned it on its head, literally. And the church starts to experience major growth and major peace, major development, and major multiplication. Now, I have three brief takeaways from all of the content in this wonderful passage of Acts chapter 9, and they come in the form of questions because I love questions. And they all have to do with God's grace in repurposing us and calling us up to be occupied in his work in the world. So number one, how are you participating in God's work? I'm not sure you knew this, but the, the United States Navy has around 700 ships that make up what they call the Mothball Navy. Uh, these are ships that are anchored in various places across the country, and they get maintenance Uh, routine maintenance to prevent rust, and so forth. Essentially, these ships just kind of sit there and do nothing. They require a lot of money, uh, a lot of time, and they essentially do nothing. They sit in port. Now, if you talk to any pastor, there's something called the 80-20 rule. The 80-20 rule is almost true at every church. It's the rule that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the congregations. That means that, across America, many Christians sit in port and don't do much. Uh, But I want to remind you, even if you feel broken this morning, even if you feel tired, if you know Jesus, you have a purpose. God didn't redeem you for nothing. You have more to do. He wants to use your life to impact people. He wants to redeem things through your job and through your work. He wants to touch people with your, with your life and with your actions. Participate in God's work. It's the right thing. It'll renew you. It'll refresh you. God will never let you be the ultimate giver. Number two, what role does church community play in your life? What role does church community play in your life? We may have not focused on it a lot, But it's interesting that in Acts chapter 9, it was Christians who were helping Paul all along. Uh, Ananias, this this Christian, part of the church at Damascus, he's the one that came and helped explain Jesus to Paul. Uh, The church at Damascus, they were the ones that came up with the plan to help Paul escape. Barnabas, a member and a leader of the church at Jerusalem, he's the one who vouched for Paul. And the church at Jerusalem, they were the ones who helped Paul escape escape. The point is, and I say this often, there's not solo Christianity happening here. Paul may have been traveling a lot, but he was involved. He stayed connected. He knows them, and they know him, and that's how it's supposed to be. Finally, number three, what is your testimony? What is your testimony? The Olympics are coming up, and so this little final story is appropriate. A hundred years ago, Eric Liddell, he was one of the most famous Christian athletes. Uh, he was a sprinter. He won the gold in 1924. Uh, the story goes he wouldn't run his main, the 100-meter, the because it was on Sunday. He had views on uh, the Sabbath that would not allow him to run on Sunday, and so he randomly ends up running the 400, and he takes the gold. Eventually, Liddell becomes a missionary to China, and sometime in the 40s when the Japanese overran China. He was captured, along with dozens of other missionaries and workers, and they were put into an internment camp. The camp was awful. You can read about it in several books about Liddell's life. And one secular writer talks about this camp, and he essentially says how everybody at this camp, whether they were educated or uneducated, whether they were young or old, they were all out for themselves. Everybody was cruel. Everybody was stealing. Everybody was refusing to share. Even the religious people, and this particular secular writer, he talks about how even the other Western missionaries in this camp—they were the worst—they used religious language to to justify all their nonsense. But then this secular writer talks about how he met Eric Liddell at this camp, and he noticed something was different about Eric. He was filled with joy. He would he would play with teenagers. He would uh, cook and. Uh, Keep people entertained. He would constantly be pouring himself out. And later, this secular writer, he became a Christian and he reflects on the difference between Liddell and the other missionaries. And he says this Religion is not the place where the problem of man's ego is automatically solved. Rather, it is there that the ultimate battle between human pride and God's grace takes place. Human pride may win the battle and then religion can and does become one more instrument of human sin. But if there the self does meet God in his grace and so surrenders to something beyond self-interest, then Christian faith can prove to be the needed and rare release from human self-concern. If you see religion as one more way to earn your salvation, your religion will make you just as proud and selfish as everyone else, looking down your nose at other people. You know, filled with self righteousness. But if you understand the grace of God and it humbles you, and yet at the same time fills you up, makes you inwardly rich, you might become the kind of person that people not only meet and need at internment camps, but in the whole world. Paul went from a persecutor, a person who disdained and disliked certain types of people, to a person that's filled with God's grace. The grace of God and the cross of Christ humbled him, it changed him, and he's caught up in the work of God. He has a testimony, a before and after. And if you've met him like this, so do you. And he wants to use you to impact this world.